Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Usher Weighs In. This is the podcast where we share crucial information related to the outrageous and slavishly high costs of health care and the ongoing obesity pandemic. We talk about the mind shift that's needed in order for America to free itself from the shackles both of high costs and from the obesity pandemic, that both of which have really taken control of our lives and our livelihoods. So today, uh, we are going to talk about misinformation and disinformation, and what the difference between those two things are. And then we'll have to talk about uh, unlearning, unteaching, um, and undoing uh, years of mis- or disinformation in order to get people to be able to um, uh, focus effectively on their health, metabolic health, their overweight, their obesity state, and um, just kind of what that means to start thinking in a different way. So, as you know, I'm Dave Usher. I'm a family physician, and I've been an obesity medicine specialist for 18 years. Um, our, in our current practice, we treat hundreds of patients every month and uh, help them lose weight safely and quickly uh, so they can get their lives back in order and take back, really, take back their lives. Um, they they often will ask for help from others, maybe uh, other professionals, maybe even a trusted physician, and uh, simply find that um, these experts, these professionals, really don't have much uh, to offer them beyond what they might have heard before, maybe a referral to a dietitian uh, to, or to some uh, commercial weight loss program and so on. So uh, we have we have been treating this for a long time very, very effectively and uh, get some world-class results. So it's uh, a, obviously a problem that's near and dear to my heart, so I have to come back to it from time to time and um, share what I know and what we've what we've learned. Uh, and just to, by way of review, of course, the problem of obesity is not getting any smaller. Um, according to Centers for Disease Control, it's probably 70, more than 72%, but 72% of this country is either overweight or obese. And by saying obese, that's a medical term. It's not meant to be pejorative. Uh, it's just the word that's been out there. Um, I like to say that uh, adults or children have obesity just like they have diabetes because it is a chronic disease, uh, no doubt. Uh, and of that 72%, more than half, that is 42% of adults, um, struggle with obesity. 10% uh, of the population or a quarter of the people with obesity have um, what we call class 3 obesity. And what the uh, medical terminology used to be for that is and still shows up sometimes uh, because it's just an old term, is morbidly obese. Um, and by morbidity, we just means it just means you have uh, obesity at a class 3 level or a high enough level that almost assuredly it's causing some sort of uh, disease. Uh, now, recently, last week, uh, as I was telling uh, Scott, our producer here, uh, I was at a... Uh, national, actually international um, conference on uh, nutrition called Low Carb Denver. Uh, and that's a, um, a conference that's attended by, it was 
well over a thousand people and really from all across the globe and we had uh there were folks there from uh, australia new zealand and malaysia and uh, sweden and uh just around around the globe uh lots of folks are there somebody from uh, portugal uh, somebody who had lived over in africa and so on so it was really uh, an interesting thing and um what we heard there, um, a number I had not heard before, but one of the um, experts there pointed out that in the United States, only 7% of the country does not have, uh, adults, does not have some degree of metabolic syndrome or metabolic dysregulation or uh, some some type of uh, sign that they have uh, even pre-obesity, I guess was what I would call it. Um, metabolic syndrome is where a, one of one of five different criteria, either your triglycerides are high or your good cholesterol, your HDL cholesterol is low. Uh, your blood pressure might be high or, or borderline high. Uh, you might have a, a waist and abdominal circumference. Uh, and the way you figure that out is you measure around the belly button. Exhale all your air, let your tummy hang out, and then you measure that um, that circumference right at the level of the belly button. Uh, and in men, that should be less than 40 inches is considered non-metabolic syndrome. And in women, it's under 35 inches. So um, anything above that is considered a metabolic syndrome marker. Um, and because of the visceral fat that builds up, which is really toxic fat uh, inside the abdomen, not on, under the skin, but under the abdominal wall around your organs, your liver, your intestines. Um, so that's why we worry about that abdominal circumference uh, and why it's a risk factor. Uh, and then finally, elevated blood sugars, pre-diabetic levels of blood sugars, not necessarily um, the diabetes levels of 170 or 180 fasting, uh, but something over 110, and frankly, I think over 100. But 110 is kind of the cutoff uh, in the scientific literature. So what that means is 93% of the adults in this country are sick or pre-sick, and they just and many of them don't know it. Um, and this actually has been our experience in our uh, with our working with our corporate uh, clients. Uh, their uh, employees and dependents will come in. Uh, routinely for health screenings, and we will find lots of um, uh, sometimes one-offs, but sometimes we'll find new patients with new diagnosis of diabetes, um, and it really is uh, a silent cluster of things. And you know, for a lot of reasons, which you probably all have heard me talk about, um, people avoid going to doctors uh, because of cost and so on. But um, so they may not have any idea they've been sitting on blood pressure or blood sugar problems for years, and because they've not been to a doctor, they wouldn't know. Uh, but in any case, huge numbers of people have metabolic dysregulation or, or um, like metabolic syndrome factors. Metabolic syndrome is o only diagnosed when you have three of those things, triglycerides, HDL, blood pressure, abdominal circumference, or blood sugars. But frankly, any of those is uh, like a dashboard going off on your automobile uh, a dashboard light where you an indicator where you it should grab your attention and you should pay attention to that and figure out what the issue is causing that to go off sometimes I'll have people come in for their annual checkups and I'll find eight or nine different dashboard lights are going off they feel 
what they think is they feel fine. Uh, they don't have any major complaints. Um, but when you uh, put that dashboard of uh, findings in front of them and, and in front of me, frankly, you kind of go, wow, this is something we should pay attention to. So triglycerides, and believe it or not, not bad cholesterol, triglycerides is the single most predictive risk factor for heart attacks and strokes. When you go in for your annual cholesterol uh, visit, uh, that number triglycerides uh, is uh, indicative of most indicative of uh, risk for blood vessel disease and therefore clots in places like coronary arteries and carotid and uh, cerebral arteries uh, that cause things like heart attack and stroke. And so uh, triglycerides is really a number that for years, and when I was in training, we kind of looked at it and said, well, yeah, 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 but your LDL is fine. Um, but it turns out triglycerides is the single most predictive, uh, the strongest predictor of future health problems. Um, so uh, having said that, uh, triglycerides are generally caused, high triglycerides are generally caused by uh, carbohydrate, carbohydrate, particularly sugar in the diet. Um, alcohol will also drive up triglycerides. Um, and uh, in any case, for lots of reasons, including including health, of course, um, people are always trying to lose weight. And so one of the things that we'll track when we're when they're wanting to lose weight in our medical weight loss program, of course, is their triglycerides. Um, and simple ch simply changing diet can make that uh, much better really pretty quickly. So lots of people are trying to lose weight. And lots of people are making money on that. And uh, so weight loss industry in this country is probably around $20 billion a year, billion with a B. And uh, what you know, and maybe you've done this yourself, uh, no judgment, uh, lots of people have. I do it every day, uh, is folks have tried numerous programs to kind of get their weight down. Um, the government has for years put out guidelines around um, what people should be eating if you all remember the old food pyramid that came out around 1980, and then later it was revised to My Plate. Um, Michelle Obama came out with her school lunch program back in 2010, the same year that Obamacare. Um, uh, Health Insurance Affordable Care Act came out. Um, and despite these initiatives, the rates of obesity in the U.S. population continues to climb. Um, yeah, the, the school lunch program, I kind of get a kick out of because uh, my kids did nothing but complain about it after it passed. And uh, even though they were at the Catholic school, their lunch programs were still affected by this. And uh, the the name of that program was the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010. Uh, it was purporting to promote healthy, balanced, and nutritious school lunches. Um, the idea was it would tackle both hunger and combat our national childhood obesity epidemic. Uh, lots of famous people or well-placed people um, had lots of good things to say about this when it first passed. Um, uh, Senator Bill Frist from Tennessee, who's actually a physician, uh, talked about the fact that in Tennessee at that time, that was in 2010, 37% of the kids were overweight. Um, the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, who is uh, a fellow Iowan uh, with me, uh, was the governor of Iowa, 
but became the ag sec- the secretary of the Department of Agriculture, um, uh, claimed that the bill will allow the USDA to do more effective and to be more effective and aggressive in responding to obesity and hunger challenges for America's kids. Oh, let's see, Senator Cory Booker, uh, he was then the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, uh, claimed, we are defeating childhood and adult obesity by partnering with organizations and community leaders to create local-based change that empower families, neighborhoods, and youth to embrace a healthier lifestyle. Uh, And then, and this is a, a really good one, the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics claimed that the school lunch program will help address childhood obesity by reducing the fat and calorie content of school meals. Well, how'd that go? Um, in January, in JAMA, the Journal of the AMA in 2018, uh, it was reported that uh, childhood obesity, in fact, from 2008 to 2016, six years into the uh, Michelle Obama lunch program, childhood obesity was up to 18.5% overall. So kids continued to gain weight and become, uh, uh, well, let's say become obese, but have obesity, um, uh, sicker, basically, from their overweight, uh, despite all of these people's uh, fine sentiments about this. Um, Mostly my kids just complained that now nothing tasted good and they hated eating rabbit food and, uh, uh, and so on at school. So um, what's interesting about this, and I did a little uh, digging uh, and mathematics, if you will, uh, on this, um, on, the, on the website around this Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of 2010, they showed a typical hypothetical lunch menu. And um, I dug into that just a little bit just to see how much difference uh, what I think are the important things would be to get the sugar and the starch down and increase the protein um, substantially and um, and see what happens uh, with regard to that. And so uh, after hearing my kids moan and groan about it and so forth, um, I, I kind of chuckle about the things they talk about. And I thought, yeah, that's that would be what I would expect uh, from somebody who doesn't understand the effect of carbohydrates on the obesity epidemic. But um, so one one typical Friday on this menu... Uh, the before they the lunch program would be implemented, they said what you would see on there would be cheese pizza, canned pineapple, tater tots with ketchup, and low fat chocolate milk. And the the after uh, menu after they tinkered with it and made it healthier and um, uh, so you'd be hunger free uh, included whole wheat cheese pizza baked sweet potato fries, raw grape tomatoes, applesauce, low-fat 1% white milk, and low-fat ranch dip. So having uh, looked at those, I went through um, what the USDA would say about the nutrition content on these and uh, determined that uh, the difference between uh, the before menu and the after menu with regard to uh, probably the most satiating thing anybody can eat, uh, that is to say, reduces your hunger. Uh, the protein content of the 
of the original menu uh, was about 23 grams of protein, and the protein content of the after menu was about 25 grams of protein. So um, not a very substantial increase. Uh, when you figure um, you're talking about treating growing kids and so forth, and protein is probably the single most important nutrient they can get uh, to uh, build muscle and uh, healthy bones and so on. So there wasn't much change there, but a little bit. Uh, to their credit, that's about a 10% increase. But when I looked at the carbs, thinking, okay, this is this is where we could really uh, have an effect. Um, what the carbohydrate did was went from 94 grams uh, at lunchtime down to 88 grams. So that's about a 6% decrease, not even 10% decrease in uh, net carbs. So what is the what does all that mean? Well, in the context of uh, what what we think of as a lower carbohydrate diet, and you would, and which would be perfectly healthy for kids, uh, frankly, um, a low carb diet would have maybe 50 grams of carbohydrate or 100 grams at the most uh, in a day, and um, their reduction in carbohydrates uh, went from 94 grams to 88 grams in one meal. Uh, so this still left a pretty high carbohydrate content on the table there. Um, and so I wouldn't expect, it without replacing a whole lot with protein, so it took away a few, let's, I hate the word calories, but let's, it reduced the energy from carbs, increased the calorie input from protein, uh, but not even one, one for one. Um, <clears throat> So um, we didn't get much more satiating protein out of the deal, and we still had most of the carbs. Um, of course, carbs drives insulin, and kids can get away with more carbs because their their insulin really is a growth factor for them. It makes them bigger, um, makes them taller. Um, but the whole idea of uh, teaching kids long-term to eat less and less of the um, obesogenic foods uh, this really didn't go very far uh, with regard to that because the the difference between whole wheat cheese pizza and whole wheat crust and non-whole wheat crust, uh, the net carbs are almost the same. Uh, negligible difference, really. 33 grams versus 30 grams. Um, the baked sweet potato fries, 15 grams versus 19 grams of tater tots. I almost can't believe that, but it's uh, sweet potatoes have more more carbohydrate than white potatoes on a on the average. Uh, and then they took away ketchup at 9 grams of carbohydrate, but then gave us applesauce at 20 grams of carbohydrate. Um, anyway, low-fat ranch dips had 3 grams of carbs because that's what they have to do is add some starch in order to make that thick and more appetizing. Uh, but boy, did my kids hate that. Anything that says low-fat, they just they won't touch it. <laughs> they know too much. They've lived with Dad all these years. Um, so anyway, that's, that's an example of, so let's get back to the concept originally of misinformation or disinformation. Um, misinformation, uh, the reason I'm, I'm kind of focused on this is because there is a, um, around recent political 
everything, it seems like. Everybody's accusing the other side of misinformation or disinformation. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to point out the difference in case you hadn't thought about it or in case people hadn't, um, you know, you hear it and after a while you just kind of get numb to it. Misinformation basically is, is kind of a generally a benign thing, meaning people just have the wrong info, the wrong data. Um, they're sharing it. It might be misleading a group of people, um, but it doesn't imply kind of a nefarious or evil intent on the person who's sharing it. They're, they're just wrong, right? Um, disinformation is more of what I would call propaganda, right? This is false information. This is stuff that somebody knows is wrong, and yet it's spread deliberately and it's shared and and they're obviously the person who's spreading it doesn't go out there and say hey this is wrong so you should believe it uh, but it's it's information that's spread in order to influence public opinion or to cover up the truth and so forth so they sound alike and they're spelled very closely alike but misinformation just means somebody needs to be educated um, in, in the true definition of the word, they're ignorant. That is to say, they just don't know. Disinformation, though, is is somebody's behind something. There's something going on here. And uh, somebody's trying to uh, hide something, basically. So uh, when it comes to the government and um, dietary guidelines and so forth, um, you got to ask yourself, is this misinformation or is this disinformation? And why is that important? Um and maybe it's not important in the final analysis if people just say, well, I'm changing my diet anyway, no matter whether they intended to poison the entire population or they didn't. What's happened is now 93% of us have metabolic dysfunction um, of some sort, and that has only gotten worse since the government issued its first dietary guidelines in 1980. So in 1980, the government, um, seeing that we had some obesity, uh, decided that they better put something out as far as guidelines go and, and let people know what they think they should eat and so forth. And so the government came out with, the federal government, the United States Department of Agriculture specifically, came out with this thing you all may recognize from somewhere because it still gets out there in places uh, and some professionals still talk about it like it's uh, still valid. That's the food pyramid. Do you remember that old food pyramid? Yeah, across the bottom, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. Uh, it was the title of this. That's the first. It's still called that. Um, uh, as if the rest of the world shouldn't eat this way, but for Americans, this is how we should eat. So um, that came out, and across the bottom of that pyramid, that big broad base where where they said, this is what should be the staples in your diet. This is a, a thing on which the rest of your diet should stand like it's the foundation of the building. Well, we're 6 to 11 servings of grains. That'd be bread, cereal, pasta, you know, things that uh, the United States Department of Agriculture might want to promote um, for farmers across the country. 6 to 11 servings of grains. So that was the, the base. And up one notch from that were a couple of things, I believe, fruits and vegetables. Um, would be kind of the next layer, and I think there's probably five servings of that per day. 
And then above that, in a smaller amount, would be um, eating meats and uh, dairy products. And then the little tiny tip of the pyramid was uh, those evil things, uh, fats and um, processed sugars. Uh, in those days, they used to talk about cholesterol as as a uh, bad thing, and they still talk about saturated fat as a bad thing. Um, and cholesterol causes heart disease, so you should avoid foods that have that are high in cholesterol and so on. One of the things to know about the Dietary Guidelines for Americans is this is put out by the United States Department of Agriculture. Well, if you look at the US the USDA, if you look at the USDA website, um, what you'll learn is that the mission behind the USDA largely uh, is to promote the agricultural products uh, made in America. So they're, they are not the Department of Health and Human Services. They are not even the FDA. They are the USDA. They don't have a, a vested interest in making the country healthier. That's not, that's not their scorecard. They don't have that. At the end of the day, people don't look at the USDA and go, yeah, but did the country get healthier under your watch? Uh, their job is sell farm products, whether that's dairy or meat or grains or fruits and vegetables. So um, you have to take everything with that comes out of the USDA with that in mind. Like, wow, huh, we're going to do 6 to 11 servings of grains, etc. Okay, well, Americans don't think that deeply about these things very often because they just kind of have trusted the federal government for years to do the right thing for them. And um, that, that's its own whole topic uh, for a podcast on another day. Um, but they are, uh, we kind of slavishly participated in this for years. Our, our fat content in our diet has gone down. Um, but what's happened over time is that we've replaced that with uh, carbohydrate, nearly 300 calories of carbohydrate consumption per day. So our total calorie consumption has actually um, gone up over the years and not down. Um, and what's happened is our protein content kind of stays the same because that's the one thing in our diet that we really need and people will eat until they're satisfied. And protein is the most satisfying thing um, that we can eat. So uh, what's resulted from all that extra carbohydrate is this obesity demic. So since 1980, when the food pyramid came out, you could see this rapid uptick in the obesity rates across this country uh, to the point where, you know, what used to be uh, a 10 or 12 percent obesity rate is now 42 or 43 percent obesity rate. And that's all since the government uh, put their dietary guidelines out there. Somewhere along the line, um, it turns out that the food pyramid was rethought, and so um, about 20 years later, they came out with a new thing. It's called MyPlate, myplate.gov. Um, and they they understood at that time that the food pyramid was um, probably wrong, and so they reassessed it and uh, kind of Put together a new graphic so that it would look like there's something a little more balanced, maybe a little less on the fruit, on the uh, grains and starches uh, front, and uh, a bigger emphasis really on uh, fruits and vegetables. And um, the graphic really doesn't talk about fat at all, uh, but it says you should have a little, a little quarter of your plate should be protein, probably less than a quarter, and then a big 
big chunk of your plate would be grains, and then another half of your plate would be uh, vegetables and fruits, probably a little more vegetables than fruit. And, of course, off to the side, you had to have a dairy product. I presume that was um, drinking milk. Um, and, again, years later, another 20 years later, they revised them again. And now the latest guidelines uh, from 2020 to 2025, dietary guidelines for Americans, are out. Uh, and these are even... <coughs> These really haven't gotten much better. Uh, they do, uh, to their credit. Um, uh, these are the guidelines. This is from the website. Uh, it's kind of the executive summary. It gives you a list of, uh, they call this, making every bite count. And so follow, guideline number one, follow a healthy dietary pattern at every stage of life. Uh, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> well, breastfeed your kids. Uh, that's good. Um, and I give them a lot of credit for that. That's probably breastfeeding is the breast milk is the only food we are truly perfectly designed to consume. Uh, everything else um, we can talk about uh, separately, but breast milk is is really the only perfect human food, and we should probably be keeping our babies on that until uh, they can chew their own meat. Frankly, but um, and then after after six months, even though you might still be nursing a, a baby, you would start introducing uh, nutrient-dense complementary foods and the foods that are including foods that are rich in iron and uh, zinc and include those foods that are potentially allergenic uh, because the earlier you introduce them the less likely they'll develop allergies to them and then from 12 months through adulthood uh, the recommendation is Follow a healthy dietary pattern across the lifespan to meet nutrient needs, help achieve a healthy body weight, and reduce the risk of chronic disease. That doesn't seem to tell me anything. Scott, does that tell you anything specific? No, he shakes his head. Custom, okay, so that doesn't do much for me. Customize and enjoy nutrient-dense food. This is recommendation number two. Nutrient-dense food and beverage choices to reflect personal preferences, cultural traditions, and budgetary considerations. The guidelines provide a framework intended to be customized to individual needs. Uh, again, um, there's not much specific in there. Um, and then uh, number three is focus on meeting food group needs with nutrient-dense foods and beverages and stay within calorie limits. Wow. Um, the underlying premise is that nutritional needs should be met primarily from foods and beverages. Um, well, the only beverage with any nutrient we should be consuming is breast milk. After that, it really is, uh, the, the good Lord made us function on water, right? Everything else has been sold to us, packaged and sold, uh, or created in a, in a factory and sold. Um, so the core elements of a healthy dietary pattern include vegetables of all type, fruits, especially whole fruit, grains, at least half of which are whole grain, dairy including fat-free or low-fat milk, and so forth. Um, yogurt. Uh, fortified soy beverages, which I think is nonsense. Protein foods, including lean meats, poultry, eggs, seafood, beans, peas, lentils, nuts, seeds, and soy products. And oils, including vegetable oils and oils in foods such as seafoods and nuts. Um, and number four, which I'll give them credit for, is limiting foods and beverages rich higher in added sugars. Um, but also they mentioned saturated fat and sodium 
and also limiting alcoholic beverages, which I can give them a little bit of credit for that as well. Uh, sugar is a big deal, and um, they talk about less than 10% of calories per day starting at age 2. Well, if you're a 2,000-calorie person, 10% uh, would be 200 calories. That would be 50 teaspoons of sugar a day. 50 grams of, of sugar a day, which is equal to about 12 teaspoons. That's an awful lot of sugar. Uh, as you uh, may know, and we low-carbers know, holy man, that's like a landslide of sugar. So uh, there's a lot to be said about uh, these guidelines. Um, we know uh, terribly well that saturated fat is, has no implications for heart disease whatsoever. Cholesterol in the diet has no implications for heart disease. Uh, we know that vegetable oils and seed oils, things manufactured, uh, do have uh, negative impacts on health, and I would avoid those. Um, but the question is, is this misinformation or is it disinformation? The data is out there. It's clear. Uh, I spent three days at Low Carb Denver being inundated with studies going back 20, 30 years where where it's been clear that this, uh, these some of these things that they're pushing onto us are are um, det detrimental to our health and contributing to the obesity uh, epidemic. So um, dietary food guidelines from the government, uh, overall I have to give it about a D. Um, there are a couple of uh, bright spots in there, but most of it is kind of the rehash of the old uh, bunk, including the grains and the fruits and the vegetables and so forth. And um, on another podcast we'll talk about what it is we're really supposed to eat when we're eating ancestrally. Um, I would like to thank you for taking the time to join our podcast today. Uh, we are going to draw today to a close, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on Dr. Usher Ways In. <laughs>